0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Stephen Engel and Timothy Lyle, who are the co-authors of Disrupting Dignity, Rethinking Power and Progress in LGBTQ Lives. This was published in 2021 by New York University Press in the LGBTQ politics series. And it is a really interesting and deep exploration of our thinking about not only the idea of dignity, but the inclusion and exclusion of people based on that concept itself. Um, But I'm going to let Stephen and Timothy tell us all about that. So I'd like to welcome Stephen Engel and Timothy Lyle to the podcast and ask them to each tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this particular project. Hello.
3: Hello. Um, I guess uh, this is Steve. I will uh, start. Um, I'm a, a professor of politics at Bates College, where I teach courses in constitutional law, um, U.S. politics, uh, LGBTQ politics, and the subfield of American political development. Um, and I think, and and certainly, you know, I think Timothy will add to this, but as I think back on where this project started, um, we began conceptualizing the book back in probably around 2016, but did a deep dive around 2019 um, when we started with a basic observation that dignity discursively was being utilized uh, both by LGBTQ plus community organizations and advocacy organizations, but also that we were seeing it kind of as a cornerstone of uh, judicial decision making um, in cases such as Obergefell and certainly prior to Obergefell going back to Lawrence versus Texas, and also that we were just seeing it um, in pop culture, uh, in Netflix series that featured LGBTQ, canada- uh, LGBTQ uh, characters, um, and and so it was kind of all over the place uh, in 2019. Um, certainly, you know during the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots, um, and so. That's at least, um, I think we began with that observation of trying to figure out why is this word becoming so attached to the politics um, and legal construction of this movement?
2: Timothy.
1: Yeah. Hi, thank you so much for having us on. Uh, as, as Stephen was talking about dates and such, I was just sort of like trying to do the math for myself, but time has become uh, such a mystery to me over the last couple of years. Uh, but I, uh, am an associate professor of English, uh, in queer studies. Um, most specifically I write, uh, about, uh, black women writers and their exploration of the HIV AIDS crisis. So, um, to give you a little bit further context back, uh, we, we started this project in a very small form in a law review project, uh, in 2016, uh, that was sort of looking at, uh, the concept of dignity taking and, and dignity restoration. Um, and, uh admittedly, both of us were sort of struggling, you know, as we were kind of navigating that project um, with, you know, what do we really mean by this word? And uh, what does it mean to give someone dignity? What does it mean to restore dignity? Like who, who can do that and when? And, you know, what are, what are all the, the dynamics at play? Um, and, you know, I think to Steve's point, by 2019, we, we were realizing, wow, like dignity is actually all over the place. And it's like, it's having a moment um, and I think most folks tend to think of it as a kind of unalloyed good, you know, as you know who doesn't want to uh, to have dignity, who doesn't want to have their their dignity respected or or acknowledged. Um, and I think the more that we started probing kind of from our own areas of expertise, uh, either pop culture representation or kind of jurisprudence or or public health, um, we we started to recognize that that the dignity was a little more complicated uh, than an unalloyed good. Um, and so we kind of started asking some some questions about the underbelly uh, of of dignity. You know, might it, ironically, actually be a cause for concern? Um, and you know, what does that mean? And the the, the continual fight for for LGBTQ progress. So, uh, the book is really trying to take a take a stab at that and see what we come up with.
2: And and you said that a lot of the time we think about this word dignity as something that. You know, one aspires to have um, that it's a concept that's usually connected to positive understandings um, and it's also something that we we as an individual or as you talk about in the book the state um, sort of conveys to other people um, so it's it's something that is not necessarily inherent but is something that is given. Um, and I just was teaching Rousseau's second discourse this week, so this is kind of on my mind a little bit too. Um, but can you talk a bit about, you know, sort of how you, you saw this going on, there was like an inflection point where it seemed to be everywhere, but then you started to sort of deconstruct this term and our understanding of it. Can you explain a bit about that since that's the umbrella of the book?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll start a little bit, um, you know, as someone who studies language and, and narrative, uh, you know, I'm deeply interested in, in rhetoric. Um, and I, I think that one of the things that we noticed was that, that dignity, you know, if, if we're looking at it in, in, a, in a particular certain arena, like pop culture, it may be about visibility, it may be about recognition. Um, if we're thinking about it in the law, you know, it may be about respect, uh, it may be about respectability. Um, in, in public health, it may be about apology and and uh, and reparation, and, and I think you know ultimately we we kind of came to the, the the conclusion, at least the provisional one for for the book, is that this word is being deployed that it has a kind of elasticity to it and it has a seduction to it um, that allows it to. Uh, to mean kind of whatever people want it to mean, you know, uh, particularly folks who were in power, whether we're talking about the marketplace or, or the state, um, uh, or, and ultimately it kind of emerged for us, I think, as a, as a, a tool of power. Um, and, you know, when we were looking at whether or not, you know, this this kind of uh, bestowal of dignity has uh, is cause for celebration or concern, we kind of asked ourselves, you know, is this actually widening uh, uh, equality and equity and, and fostering more inclusion, or, or might it actually be deployed to, to, to redefine some boundaries uh, and, and to do a lot more exclusionary work than we might think, um, particularly under the guise of, of a term that both folks think is, a, is an unalloyed good. Um, and you know, I think that was a, a huge concern for us as we were kind of mapping this conversation.
3: Right. And I think um, in my particular field of U.S. constitutional law, I came at it uh, initially being, well, well, it must have a stable meaning. It must have a stable usage in in jurisprudence. Right. Um, And yes, while it is true that the U.S. Constitution does not have a dignity clause like uh, many other post-World War II constitutions, um, Dignity is a word that has pervaded a lot of decisions on a tremendous number of constitutional claims uh, over the course of the 20th and 21st century. But it really is a kind of cornerstone of LGBTQ Supreme Court decisions, at least since uh, Lawrence, the, you know, Lawrence, Windsor, Obergefell the masterpiece uh, cake decision. And I think, and and I, we're certainly not the only scholars to point this out. Uh, uh, Yuvrav Joshi's legal scholarship comes to mind, thinking about um, the same word is used to mean, in many ways, quite oppositional uh, definitions. So uh, to Timothy's earlier point about respect Uh, we often see kind of dignity used in a case like Planned Parenthood versus Casey to think about individual bodily autonomy. That dignity means having respect for one's choices, even if we disagree with them, that you have a kind of internal sense of self um, and an integrity to that self. But when you look at some of the marriage decisions that came out in the 2010s, there's this theory about, or there's this rhetorical use of dignity as being bestowed, right? As um, it's not about individual choice to behave in a certain way. It's about recognition of you, you're behaving in a way that I approve of, right? And in that way, it's much more like respectability. And then suddenly the implications of the one term can mean quite not just different things, but quite oppositional elements. And that's where we started to say, maybe what's powerful about this term is not that it carries a definitive meaning, but that it can be deployed to mean particular things in different contexts. And then that becomes a tool of power. And that's why this is a political, become ultimately becomes a political question.
2: and And one of the dimensions that you bring into this whole discussion is how the term dignity and the role of the state um, sort of comes into play with regard to it and how that reflects um, the sort of neoliberal understanding of the world, which I found to be a fascinating and complex, nuanced argument. (laughs) Um, But Certainly persuasive. Can you explain how this term, which, as you're pointing out, has these sort of elastic dimensions, um, but has come to be connected to, in a lot of ways, this kind of neoliberal thinking in the United States?
3: Well, I think one of the, the key connections is to really understand what we mean by neoliberalism, right? And so I think one of the ways um, that we think through neoliberalism is to contrast it with some elements from queer theory, but ultimately to bring in the idea that neoliberalism is a particular approach to state power and state capacity that's ultimately hostile to state power and state capacity, but also state responsibility. And so when we think about um, the notion of dignity, it's really about the ways in which state authorities can invest individuals with responsibility while also divesting of responsibility and accountability for citizens themselves um, and for the capacity of citizens to achieve and have different opportunities. And so I think one of the things we've really wrestled with is how by deploying and investing different categories of individuals with dignity, and I think about this particularly in the marriage debate, right, insofar as um, gays and lesbians have marriage now accessible to them, in what ways does that essentially take the state out of responsibility and provide individuals with other more privatized um, access to resources and support? That's just one way to think through what some of those connections are.
1: Yeah, I would would add um, that I think some uh, another part of the book, um, you know, because we d- we don't necessarily want to be read only as as dignity skeptics, uh, a, a term that I think gets uh, tossed in Steve's direction more than more than mine. Um, but you know, we were we're also looking at, at kind of ways to do dignity differently. You know, we were thinking about it rather than a status, uh, thinking about it as an action, something that you do. You do dignity or do dignity work and one of the things that was clear to us as we were looking at kind of alternative constructions of dignity um, that maybe fall outside of of those mandated by the state or the marketplace tend to come from folks who uh, are the most removed from uh, being coded as dignified Right. So like folks on the margins of, uh, of race or, or, or gender or sexual identities or, or class statuses um, and those folks that insist on historicizing uh, concerns, insist on context, insist on uh, um, systems and institutions and all the inequities that are built into them. Those folks, uh, t- and I'm thinking namely of of writing by trans women of color, those folks tend to provide us with the clearest uh, oppositional understanding of, of, of dignity um, that isn't used as a tool for the state or isn't used as a tool for the marketplace. So, you know, in thinking about how neoliberalism demands dehistoricizing, demands decontextualizing, uh, is fundamentally kind of individualized. Um, it it is often those folks that are the farthest removed um, from those uh, definitions of dignity that provide us maybe with some of the clearest, more equitable routes forward.
3: And I think if I could just quickly add to that, one of the things that we really came through across all of the domains, whether it was public health or pop culture or uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence, was this idea that dignity was being deployed as kind of a universal, to use Timothy's earlier phrasing, this universal unalloyed good. And what we were finding was that that was clearly mapping onto a particular normative notion uh, that was primarily, in terms of the LGBTQ plus communities, a white, cisgendered, masculinist presentation of both values and, and goals. And so I think when we think about you know, um, the ways in which neoliberal goals often align with some conservative objectives for policy and for legal outcomes, we can think about dignity as being perceived as this universal good. But at the same time, by being universal, it becomes decontextualized, it becomes dehistoricized. And therefore, then the real work of actually attending to Um, the diversity and variation and the equitable needs uh, within the community is just erased. And I think that's where then the state doesn't have accountability because what it's ultimately doing is while we're providing a kind of universalistic good, we don't have to take account of the ways in which uh, our systems and structures have caused a series of inequitable outcomes because we, we don't do the historical work or the contextualizing work
2: and and so i did want to take you from there to a little bit of the way that you have incorporated the idea of queer theory and queerness um in in a kind of um contrast uh in our thinking about you know the way that the term dignity and the idea of dignity has kind of been structured into our you know, thinking about this is a good thing that I want my own dignity and I will receive it if I act a certain way, which is a lot of what you're sort of talking about within the book in terms of how people do act um, and allowing for or not allowing for some of those differences in conduct.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think um, uh, the the idea that Timothy alluded to earlier about moving away from dignity as a status to dignity as an action is a, a important move that we make uh, when we talk about in the introduction about how to queer dignity. Um, and I think one of the things that's really important is to think about, and I was actually just teaching this in my um, queer politics course, when we're thinking about the concept of queer and is it an adjective um, in terms of an identity status um, and really thinking about what does it mean to queer something, um, to use queer as a a verb. And I think there we really build off a wide uh, community of scholars. I think ultimately we build off... um, Jack Halberstam's work about um, the queer art of failure and thinking through um, what does it mean to fail at something? And we just pose the question of what does it mean to fail at dignity, particularly the notion of uh, normative notions of being dignified? And what then does that failure open up as a different way to conceptualize <laughs> Again, not necessarily throwing away the concept of dignity, but breaking it open so that it might be more inclusive.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah, I mean, to add on, I mean, this is part of of uh, the, the fundamental questions we were asking about dignity is is maybe what's sacrificed or what's potentially lost in this quest for dignity. Um, and I think one of the things that we landed on is that the possibility that the, the dignity turn, you know, for lack of a, a better word, uh, has the the very real potential to drain the subversive uh uh, queer qualities, right from um, from LGBTQ plus life, um, and so as seductive as it is, and uh, you know as as promising as it may look, uh, there can be some really dire consequences. So, kind of turning back into uh, a, a queer penchant for difference, turning back into the value of, of thinking non-normatively, uh, helped us think about dignity differently. But in a way, it was also an attempt to just sort of measure. Uh, what we perhaps were trading in uh, to, to have the, 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 the conferral of dignity in the first place. Um, and I think that's an ultimate uh, argument that we make is there's, there's kind of a, a dynamic tension that we're mapping between this sort of seductive homogenization that, that dignity uh, carries with it and the sort of queer penchant for, for difference um, and transgression that has never really gone away um, even if it has, you know, been been diluted and, and defanged a little bit uh, throughout the last few decades, so queer as a as a paradigm for for thinking was was really important for us as we were navigating the project.
2: And and I thought that made a lot of sense, also in terms of um, thinking about it conceptually. Um, but I did want to ask you um, to. To sort of, so we can go through a bit of the sections of the book and the, the kind of case studies, if you will, um, that the two of you use. Um, there's, there's and, and you talk about this throughout that there's the, the issue of public policy, specifically public health policy. Um, and that starts with the bathhouses um, at the you sort of or origins of the AIDS crisis. Um, You have a section that I particularly enjoy because I do work on popular culture, um, on popular culture artifacts um, that, again, are sort of looking at some of these contrasts. And then finally, the jurisprudential or legal dimensions um, with regard to particularly Supreme Court decisions in the United States. Um, So you talk about in the, the first section, um, you start with the bathhouses, but then you you move to in a contrasting sort of chapter um, where we are with regard to HIV/AIDS, um, and uh, and you know, sort of what this different status connection is now, um, as opposed to what was going on in the nineteen eighties in New York and San Francisco. Um, so, can you just fill in a little bit of the details of like why this was also the starting point?
1: Yeah, I'll take the the first piece, and, and also just important to kind of mention that the in the three six chapters total, right? Uh, and in the three sections, like w- one chapter is sort of part of that first part of the dynamic tension that I was talking about, the sort of thrust towards homogenization, and the the second chapter is is sort of the response or or, or, or kind of thinking about. The, the queer pension of difference uh, for difference that uh, and resistance that may be possible, even if still somewhat stained by uh, by dignity's uh, allure. And we we wanted to start uh, with the early AIDS crisis, not necessarily because it was the moment. Um, but it, it was a moment, a, a really vulnerable moment for for queer communities, um, where the generative work of dignity became really clear for us. Um, and, you know, kind of situating it in the bathhouse closure debate and the kind of public health policies that were flying around in the mid 80s um, was really revealing to us because I think what we ultimately saw was that that LGBTQ communities, particularly gay male communities uh, or gay men and, and sexual spaces, they were kind of delivered a, a dignity ultimatum, you know, or or a kind of uh, what we call in the book, a death ultimatum. And and, and basically it was behave or or die, um, you know, or act dignified or or die. And, you know, we saw in those kind of public health debates that uh, there was no real effort to understand the community, the, the multidimensional space of the bathhouse and the way that it functioned as a community organizing space. Um, and, and instead, uh, we, we saw that the virus kind of became this like, this ideological sort of glove puppet to borrow from Simon Watney a little bit, uh, to, to speak about values that had existed well before, right. The onset of HIV AIDS. I mean, these were, were blights on neighborhoods, you know, that were, uh, showing the seedier parts of things, lowering property values, affecting communal health, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and it became a very convenient sort of way. uh, the, the, the virus came, a, a, became a convenient way to, uh, Accomplish some work that was already in motion for, for a very long time. Um, and, you know, when you kind of look at, uh, at this on the heels of, of the sexual revolution of the 70s and sort of all of the, the the queer practices that we talk about, understanding time and space differently, understanding kinship and relationality differently, uh, understanding productivity, maybe in ways that are not necessarily uh, uh, a value to, to the marketplace, um, that It became especially, I think, heartbreaking and and noteworthy that this was the moment, right, where dignity was sort of offered as a as a kind of um, flotation device, you know, to say, hey, if you want to get out of this, you want resources, you want our support, you know, you want safety, uh, you want to be able to care for your loved ones, you visit hospitals, right, claim your dead. This is what's going to be required of you. you know, because you might scratch your head and go, like, well, well, where did the, how did we get here? You know, how did, how did we get to the, the, the political moment of the marriage debates? Um, you know, when we were not that far removed from, uh, from the, the revolutions of, of the 70s, late 60s and 70s. And I think AIDS is a very clear uh, reason why. And um, the work that was done by public health authorities through the lens of dignity. Um, just showed us the rhetorical violence, ultimately, you know, that was accomplished to a community that was besieged. Um, so it was a was a good starting point.
3: And and I think one of the reasons we also started there, beyond just thinking about kind of the ways it helped us bookend the scope of the of the of the project, where we started with with HIV/AIDS, the bathhouse debates, and the ways in which the epidemic was directly related to the focus on marriage, which is where we end the book. One of the other reasons we started there was that it, it helped us definitionally think about what we could show as a dignity taking, right? The role of the state in actually um, dehumanizing and treating as childish a community that was actually organizing a massive public health protocol in the absence of the state actually doing anything. And one of the things we were able to do with a tremendous amount of archival work was kind of just reconstruct the ways that uh, community members, both in, in New York and in San Francisco, had created public health regimes to regulate their own usage of bathhouses, to keep these spaces open as as really important, vital spaces of queer community and queer kinship and ultimately how the state came in, uh, ignored the achievements that were done within the communities, and then also basically adopted everything that the communities had already innovated, claimed as their own, and had no better outcomes, right? And so there's this clear process by which state authorities are engaging in a dignity taking of a community. Um, and taking away one of their core uh, resources. And then we move on in the second chapter in the public health section to talk about kind of the new context in which we understand HIV, AIDS, and thinking particularly about treatment as prevention, as well as uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, and how um, the both the community but also the sort of public health apparatus in uh the the United States has kind of redefined the responsible um, individual as that person who can suppress their viral load or who is taking uh, pre-exposure medication and how in fact those parameters of responsibility and what it means to be a dignified individual in this public health context is actually quite inaccessible for some individuals, either based on um, their status with uh, HIV AIDS or but certainly based upon their access to health care, um, given a, a, a market Uh, healthcare system that is incredibly inequitable. And so tying that to access to dignity is actually connected to access to resources, which are massively um, inequitably distributed across society in ways that obviously match on to both class and race uh, disparities.
2: And, and so the, the first part, then we look, we're looking at public health, public policy. Um, The next section, you are looking at two pop culture artifacts, Um, the film, the major release of Love, Simon, um, which has an origin book uh, that you discuss and the television series Pose um, and again, we have the sort of contrasts that you sort of talk about. Um, also doing Marx this week, I would say maybe a dialectic. Uh, <laughs> and, and so oh, why dive into, first of all, why dive into popular culture, um, which I'm always asked, um, and what do we learn from popular culture, which I'm also always asked, um, and why these particular cultural artifacts?
1: Yeah, um, why why pop culture? Wow, that's a question we could spend a whole episode talking about. Um, uh, you know, I I'm really interested, namely because of its accessibility and its <laughs> its pervasiveness, right? Like, I think that is is a is a quick and dirty answer. Um, but I also think that that pop culture has the the sort of ability to to both reflect, you know, a, a sort of current climate, uh, but also to help in constituting uh, that, that climate, right. Um, and certainly going anywhere, uh, where folks are receiving mass pleasure <laughs> tends to be very instructive. Uh, my grandmother always said, wherever there's pleasure, pleasure, trouble may be afoot. Um, uh, you know, so I was very fascinated with, uh, the release of, of Love, Simon, uh, in, in 2018 and sort of all the, all the buzz that was, was circulating the film as this kind of, uh, hallmark of uh of of visibility and and and, you know just the celebration of of lgbtq uh representation um but i have to be honest that these two films uh uh came or these two products uh tv show and film came together for me at least uh by way of whitney houston um all all roads lead back to to whitney houston um both both of these uh, these narratives contain moments where uh, her sort of queer anthem "I Want to Dance with Somebody" uh, is it plays a pivotal role in the narrative, um, and so that was sort of a jumping-off point for for me to kind of think about um, how these two uh, case studies really illustrate something for us about um, the 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 kind of uh i guess push and pull you know that that we see in in pop culture representation um and love simon w- was certainly you know part of this kind of um uh i i talk about it as like uh, inter uh incorporation without disruption you know that that uh so much of of the dignity thrust involves sameness you know or this this sort of demand of sameness uh and in fact one of the opening lines of of, of the film love simon Uh, The protagonist, uh, Simon Spear, says, I'm just like you. Um, You know, it's a kind of just sort of immediately uh, prime the audience um, for for what they're going to experience. And in that narrative, I think we see uh, a, a. very contemporary representation that in a lot of ways feels very dated. I know Steve and I talked about this a little bit because Greg Berlanti, the director was also heavily involved in Dawson's Creek, which was formative for us. You know, it might be aging us a little bit, but we, we sort of felt like, wow, like he had already done this in in Dawson's Creek. Like what, we're still having this, this same sort of narrative uh, paradigm in, in 2018 and celebrating it as progress. This is, this is wild. Um, but, you know, in the film, I think we, we saw uh, Dignity's work in action. You know, Simon is, is able to uh, kind of practice what, what Rod Ferguson calls one dimensional queerness, um, where he's able to sort of just just assuage that one part of his identity that was, you know, kind of barring him from full access to kind of cis normative white supremacy, really, uh, or, or whiteness and all of its privileges. Um and you know, he's kind of set up against this this sort of excessive, queer black figure, uh, Ethan, who was not part of the actual original novel, which is which is fascinating to think about. Um, and Simon kind of cleans himself off on, on Ethan a bit. Um, and Ethan becomes this sort of figure of excess, and Simon, you know, gets sort of fully embraced by the community and fully celebrated but one thing that we noticed in kind of studying the narrative time and the narrative focus and the the casting was that what is actually centered here is the heteronormative nuclear family um you know what's actually uh uh, centered is is not a budding queer romance like the novel with with all of the the sort of the queer sex and the relationship between the two uh, uh queer characters um, instead it's 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 the family uh, that that simon you know just kind of breaks apart from a little bit and, and, and eventually once his secret is accommodated uh you know kind of gets brought back in into the fold um and you know like earlier we were talking about a, a lack of history you know a, a lack of acknowledgement of of inequities um any type of LGBTQ particularity, all of that is erased, right? Simon is is presented as this sort of universalizing figure that is having the same experience as everyone else. In, in fact, in the later parts of the film, when he starts to come out, uh, Berlanti does this very strange thing where he makes uh, coming out an experience that everyone goes through, you know, it's like, oh, uh, and then all these characters start saying things like, oh, Simon, you're so brave. You know, I, I'm scared that my mom doesn't like I'm an actor, and I'm going to come out as an actor. You know, it, it just sort of completely universalizes this this experience that's very particular to, to LGBTQ people and and very connected to power um, in ways I think to to make the the heteronormative majority um, comfortable. You know, and and Simon then gets rewarded, you know, with all of the the trappings of community and love and resources and safety. And meanwhile, the the black queer abject figure sort of falls off into the, you know, the periphery and and doesn't get the, the same rewards assignment, uh, and, and ultimately restraint, you know, is, is what the, the film is promoting, like restrain your difference, minimize, minimize your difference, uh, uh, depoliticize LGBTQ identity, um, and, uh, make yourself as, as, uh, palatable as possible. And, you know, and then you will be celebrated. And by the time we get to Pose, you know, I think we have a very different um, sort of representation, a uh, counter narrative, if you will, uh, where Pose is, the, the, the writing room um, is, is staffed with, uh, with folks like Janet Mock and Our Lady J and uh, queer and trans folks, um, Stephen Canals, right, who is also a queer person of color. Uh, and that show revels in excess, you know, revels in queerness, revels in particularity. Um, he is deeply invested in queer history and critiquing systems and institutions, uh, modeling queer kinship, um, and really, uh, ultimately, a celebration of difference, but also a critique of of persisting inequalities. Um, and the audience that is centered is not heteronormative families and is, is not uh, folks who would necessarily be coded as dignified even in LGBTQ communities. Um, so when you put the two together, they, they speak to each other in really interesting ways.
3: Yeah, and I think one of the things that struck out for me, comparing the film um, of Love, Simon to its, the the novel on which it was based, uh, Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda by Becky Albert Halley Um, is the ways in which the film is actually constructed both visually and narratively to highlight its lack of disruption, right? So it opens with a sequence and it closes with virtually the exact same sequence of events. And so ultimately the coming out of Simon in no way disrupts the power structure, the kind of what is valued by the, the film um, and there's there's a telling moment for me, because I think this is actually a, a really fraught moment in the film that a lot of people initially latched onto, which is this really heartfelt discussion between Simon and his mother, played by Jennifer Garner, and, and his mother says something to the effect of, there are certain things that you will have to go through alone, and that upsets me, but that's it's your journey. And I think what struck us about that is that he actually doesn't need to go through this alone. That there is a community, that there is a history, and that the film refuses to engage in those uh, ideas in ways that actually the novel did quite well. Um, and I think one of the things that's also telling is that for whatever reason, there's um, if you if you get the Blu-ray or DVD, it goes into deleted scenes, and one of the key deleted scenes is a scene in which Simon. Um, is at a gay bar and kind of has this amazing experience of queer joy and community and and sort of coming together and people looking out for him in this community space. And that's cut from the film. And so it's kind of an interesting uh, editorial or directorial choice um, that's made in the film um, where these focuses on disruption and on community are at the core of what is at pose, so it really does help us contrast um, the different options that might be made available and kind of the public uh, in the in the pop culture discourse. And and one thing I was actually just teaching this yesterday. Um, we were looking at in my class um, a work by Andrew Flores and some of uh, their co-authors on narrative policy frameworks and the use of narrative, particularly video. Uh, narrative construction to shape public opinion. And so I think there's this real discussion about how narrative and storytelling at a pop cultural level is like deeply connected to how we can understand questions of policy and questions of cultural values and political values and how uh, political public opinion gets shaped. Is directly re- So I think it's, it was important for us to think about narrative and hear televisual or film narrative It's just one more way in which we think about the issues that kind of populate our politics.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with, with that assessment as well. I was recently teaching exactly that in one of my classes too, <laughs> um, that we all live with stories in our head. And so when something communicates uh, is communicated to us, by a narrative, it it takes root. Also, um, so the last part of the book, which is probably the the part that most people have most familiarity with, with is the concept of dignity, um, and, and it's written into the decisions made by Supreme Court um, around um, intimate relations between um, same sex individuals. Uh, in the Lawrence decision. And then finally, the the more legalistic um, decisions around marriage equality. Um, so this final section, as you say, kind of bookends also with the beginning section. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how this the the decisions that you look at, and and there are four that you concentrate on, um, is important to think about in terms of this terminology in the law.
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we focus on um, at least four uh, Supreme Court decisions: Lawrence versus Texas, uh, United States versus Windsor Obergefell, um, and then the 2018 masterpiece cake shop case out of Colorado. Um, I think uh, briefly we mentioned Bostock, just to kind of get it in there, it was very close to the publication date, and so, and interestingly, uh, Bostock does not use the word dignity. The word dignity actually only shows up in the dissents, which I think is telling. Um, It's the first decision of the group that Kennedy is not a part of. Uh, But one of the things we wanted to highlight, I guess we have about three critiques. One of them was the muddled use of the term, right? So, this word is all over the place, but it actually means very different things across the decisions. So, in Lawrence, we see dignity being employed as a kind of autonomy, individual freedom, uh, respect concept. Those would be the synonyms. Whereas in Windsor, um, and in some levels, certainly a lot in Windsor, I think to a lesser degree in Obergefell, we see dignity as being dignified, as the respectability, as dignity as conferred upon, uh, not integral to one's individuality, but only coming through recognition um, and, and contingency in that way. Um, and so the muddled use of the term is the one thing we wanted to highlight there. And then when we look at the cases, you um, The LGBTQ rights cases, or I'll I'll just say for the Supreme Court up until Bostock, really just the gay and lesbian rights cases, because they really don't employ uh, bisexuality or transgender identity in much of their own writing, Um, they really focus, or I'd say they stray from what was the sort of standard operating procedure of how to interpret a 14th Amendment claim of discrimination, whether due process or equal protection. All of the discussion of suspect class or suspect classification is evacuated, all of the analysis. And we're just left as like this is a violation of dignity. So any kind of systemic or systematic process through which Uh, We see when we have cases of race-based discrimination or sex and gender discrimination, where we see the use of strict scrutiny or um, intermediate scrutiny, none of that is utilized in any of these cases. And it's even odder because across these cases, all of the the markers, all of the kind of uh, test points by which... Uh, this community would be identified as suspect, uh, with the consequent legal analysis are, is done. Right, so history of political powerlessness, history of discrimination, a characteristic that might be considered immutable or at which we should not uh, compel to be changed, and yet the actual legal analysis of of and legal application of suspect class status is not being done. And so we ask, what's going on there? Right. Is this just a conservative legal movement attempt to get rid of the identity politics Um, or is this more of the move from suspect class analysis to suspect classification in which we're not concerned about the historicized discrimination against African-Americans, for example, but what we're really considered by is just different treatment by race. And so then all of a sudden we move from the history of discrimination of insular and discrete minorities to the category problem of race. And then we get closer to that universalizing, dehistoricizing, decontextualizing um, um, uh, action or approach that, that that seems to align with some of the conservative legal movements agendas. And then I think the, the third critique is really centered on Masterpiece Cake Shop, And I'll just be really frank on some of the mess that is the decision, because it appears that Kennedy, in writing the decision for the majority, really kind of wants to side with the LGBTQ identified couple. And he makes all of these claims about how we cannot permit exclusion from the marketplace. And he points to various both statutory and constitutional bases on which this would be very problematic if we went down this road, right? But also his investment in dignity doesn't provide him with any metric, right? So whose dignity matters more? The same-sex couple who is going to be discriminated against if they are treated as different and ineligible for basic goods and services in a kind of um, contract rights uh, uh, framework, or the individual who's claiming that if they are compelled to provide the cake, that's a violation of their First Amendment, either expression or religious belief. And so you get into this This debate about kind of whose dignity again matters more. And it doesn't admit of a metric by which we can make that decision. And so, in many ways, the decision kind of writes itself into a corner. And then Kennedy has his. You know, get out of jail free card by citing like there's a procedural problem, and so the substantive question is never really addressed. It's ultimately addressed in the three hundred three creative decision from this past June, in in ways that that I think are 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 deeply flawed. But you know, that that's for I guess another another podcast episode.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Timothy, did you want to add anything to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Steve did an excellent job of of, of mapping out our argument there. I, I think that, you know, we're ultimately concerned, uh, well, I guess not only with uh, the fact that we're not on necessarily stable footing or stable ground, you know, with all of these victories, but also that the very thing that gave us ostensibly all of all of this, uh, all of these rights can also be deployed for, for very conservative Means, um, and you know, I think we see even in Bostock that uh, you know Gorsuch and Alito, um, you know, both in their own you know small ways, uh, preview and roadmap uh, for um, for conservatives how to how to bring their their uh, demands differently. Um, and you know, I think we're ultimately very worried about this tension between kind of dignity doctrine and and religious rights. Um, and I, I think that we're we're just seeing the beginnings of that playing out.
3: I will I will add that like just so that we can end on a more hopeful note. Uh, part of part of uh, part of that section and certainly as we highlight in in chapter 6 but also bring back in in the conclusion of the book is really thinking through are there other ways in which if we think about dignity differently can it be grounded in our constitution. Um and so we we look into and we build on a lot of uh, more recently legal scholarship, which actually looks into the 13th Amendment um, and think through how the 13th Amendment isn't only or shouldn't only be considered, considered this kind of moment in time that marks the abolition of chattel slavery, but is actually a commitment to emancipation. And if that is the case, what does that actually imply for its broad um, application uh, to contemporary contemporary legal questions and contemporary politics. And I know there's a tremendous amount of work that looks at um, uh, the 13th Amendment as applied to abortion jurisprudence or 13th Amendment as applied to la- labor rights. And we just interrogate whether there's a parallel uh, claims that can be made um, to the support of LGBTQ plus rights.
2: And so... Given that slightly more hopeful um, disposition at the end there, um, can I ask each of you what you're working on now? If there's something that you're working on together or separately?
1: Uh, I, I, we are, I, I think, kind of on our, on our different individual scholarly trajectories for the moment, um, although I would certainly be open to, to thinking together and writing together again in the future. Uh, I am currently uh, in the In the Life archives at the Schomburg, uh, and I am starting to map a very provisional uh, history of transgender, tra- transgender women of color writers um, and sort of tracing back, uh, especially life writing, uh, tracing back the the roots uh, and trying to establish a, a tradition um, that that at least goes back to the early uh, to mid 1980s with someone like Sharon Davis, uh, and will progress all the way through to someone like Janet Mock or Raquel Willis, who's uh, very famously in the spotlight right now in the so called trans tipping point. So. I am knee deep in the archives, but also very, very busy with teaching and trying to balance all of those. So hopefully we will see an iteration of of that project, at least in the next year or two.
3: And um, my job right now is split uh, between teaching and I'm also uh, an associate dean uh, at Bates. And in that role, um, I'm really focused on first year transition to college and thinking through some of those supports and actually some of the work we did in this book on narrative has really uh, reshaped our approach uh, at Bates to first years, really grounding a lot of information through storytelling and narrative structures uh, that we actually engage with our first years the summer before they arrive. So really thinking about some of the lessons learned in this research and in this uh, writing to some of the kind of practical effects that we can have pedagogically for our students outside of the classroom. But then in terms of research, I'm digging in with some of my students in constitutional law really thinking that through that Thirteenth Amendment argument. Um, and is there capacity here? And a lot of my students, and my myself is like, well, why are you why are you doing this? It's so obvious that this current court would never would never go down this path. Like, what is the point of this thought experiment? And I remind them that, you know, back in 2010, 2011, when people thought about the broccoli argument and the Affordable Care Act, like, that was crazy. Like, no one thought. Everybody was, like, you know, going back to uh, Wickard versus Filburn. The, the Affordable Care Act isn't obviously constitutional. And then some law review article came out about broccoli and the government forcing you to eat broccoli, and then that is taken up. And so there's value in kind of exploring these ideas, even if they seem really out of left field, you know, throwing ideas against the wall, seeing what sticks is really kind of the culture of constitutional interpretation in, in the U.S. So I think sort of playing with those ideas and kind of helping my students Think about how to play with constitutional questions and constitutional ideas is something i'm really focused on right now
2: well if either of these projects generate into a book i would be delighted to interview either of you or both of you together um, on the work uh on the new books again um i'd like to thank stephen engel and timothy lyle for joining me today to talk about Disrupting Dignity, Rethinking Power and Progress in LGBTQ Lives, published by New York University Press. I know this is available at the New York University Press website. Um, Is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence that either of you would like to give shout outs to?
1: Yes, thank you so much for asking that question. Uh, We are huge supporters of Blue Stockings Cooperative uh, here in New York City. They're in the Lower East Side. Uh, They are trans, queer, and sex worker-owned worker cooperative. Uh, They have been excellent partners with us uh, since the book was published. Uh, They are uh, a fundamental community resource. They do amazing community organizing. They have mutual aid efforts. They have a 501c3 component. Um, and so I think it's always great to uh, avoid, avoid Amazon if we can um, uh, and support uh, queer and, and trans-owned businesses, particularly ones uh, with strong uh, policies that support our BIPOC um, queer, queer folks. So Blue Stockings Cooperative, check them out, tell them that we sent you.
2: All right. Thank you so much, Timothy and Stephen. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. This has been
3: really fabulous.